0: So for those of you who, who haven't been here, I'm going to share a little bit more of what I consider my messy story about what the Holy Spirit's doing in my life. And as a backdrop, our staff has been walking through a discipleship process right now, and some of our leaders are entering into that. And it's a two or three year long process that invites us to kind of look at our day to day lives and ask ourselves the question, how am I showing up in a room? How am I showing up in my relationships with God and with myself and with others? And what do I bring into the room? Like, what, what do I bring with me into the room as a, as a person, as a friend, as a leader, or a neighbor, or a wife, or a father, or a mother? And because uh, we all bring something into the room with us and it creates a dynamic. And so, you know, what's my contribution? Is it positive or is it negative? And Ephesians 4:22 through 24 says you were taught with you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And I kind of like to think of the putting off the old self as that false self that we spent some time talking about. And the putting on the new self as becoming the true self of who God's always meant for me to be. A uh, little bit more about my story growing up. I grew up uh, 200 miles out of Anchorage in the interior of Alaska. Uh, very, very kind of out in the woods, very small. It was along a main highway. My family owned a truck stop with a restaurant and a hotel and a gas station and a grocery store. And I loved working in this family business. I loved working with my dad. I had a really close relationship with my dad. I admired my dad a lot, and I described him to you this morning, uh, you know, and, and all the things I loved about him. And so I started to go to over, every time I could outside of school hours or in the summer, I would just spend all my time. Uh, next to my dad and I started waiting tables in our cafe when I was like nine years old and I worked alongside my dad and we served people we cooked you know great food Uh, we worked hard we had like a family table in the back that we could eat anything we wanted for free and bring all our friends if we wanted and it was a little bit excessive and that's why I'm heavy set (laughs) Uh, I learned my dad's love of food I attached a lot of emotion to that but I love the chaos of it all, and and I and I really got good at solving problems in our, you know, in our life as as a family running a business. I, I really got good at making money. I had more money than all my friends because I got paid a real a real paycheck, uh, an hourly wage, and you know I bought a brand new motorcycle when I was in sixth grade, and you know would race up and down the trails, and all the boys were jealous, and I just thought it was fantastic. Um <laughs> But I was a really good contributor to our business for being a kid, you know. And, and in seventh grade, my parents would drive 200 miles to Anchorage to get supplies, and they would leave me, you know, running the an aspect of our business, whether it was the motel or the grocery store. And I could, like, literally open it and close it myself, and, you know, was very responsible. And because of that contribution and that responsibility and, you know, the confidence that it gave me, I felt very valuable. I I equated all of that to, like, I'm valuable. I'm valuable to my family, to, you know, we're doing a a really wonderful thing of serving people here. And in in my little world at that time as a girl, little girl, you know, being valuable meant that I was loved. To me, you know, it's an equation. Being valuable equals being loved. And so my main childhood memory is of my dad, and he was always saying this to me, I, I think I heard it, you know, at many times a week. I really don't know exactly how much he said it, but it was this. it's this main childhood message, this memory. And he would say it over and over, and he would say, Brenda, you're going to go out in the world, and you can do anything, and you're going to crush it. I believe in you. And so, you know, I became super confident as a little girl and growing up. Um, and when he said that, What I heard and the meaning that I attached to it was that I was limitless in my ability and that I was going to crush it. And after hearing this for so many years, I started to attach more meaning to it. And, you know, for me, my dad had this very over-affirming voice in my life, and it created a vow for me. And I created the vow, and I attached the meaning that as long as I did, what he believed I was going to do, what he said all the time, then I would be valuable and I would be loved and I would always be able to feel accepted. And so this vow and this meaning then slowly over time got kind of twisted and it became more and more negative. And and it got twisted because I started to attach, you know, more meaning to it. Like, if people see my limitations then I'm not going to be valuable to them and I will not have their approval and therefore I will not be loved. And so I kind of leaned into that and I really set out to live in a way that I would never let you see or admit my own limitations, which, you know, now I see as incredibly prideful and I, you know, would be happy to be the one to really like take care of everybody else and it, you know I, I would feel very valuable, and in my mind, you could have lots of limitations. I never felt like anything bad about or judged you for them because that was actually good job security for me because you know if if, if you had lim- if you had limits and you needed me, then you know that would just feed right into my negative vow, and I could just help you because i don 't have them <laughs> and and i 'll just take care of you and me, and you know the world would be a better place and so I've really been compelled kind of for a few years to sort of get to the bottom of this. Like, why do I have this gap between what I'm honestly going to let people see, my false self that we talked about, and what I'm trying to hide and what I'm hoping that you'll never, ever, ever find out? There's there's a big gap. And that's just pointed to this this false way of being uh, that I shared with you earlier. And so my false self, it kind of just like, this negative vow of like being Wonder Woman and you know limitless, uh, it, it wants you to believe that I'm, you know, all those things that I wished I was. And honestly, I see now that I did see these things in my dad. He was courageous and adventurous and spontaneous and fun-loving and strong. And you know, I I even went a step further. You can't hurt me, you know. I can serve, I can solve problems pretty much, don't have any limits. And, you know, my false self is quite lovable. And, and so, as I said this morning, she's really kept me functioning. But you know what? I'm exhausted. I have, you know, done lay ministry for 18 years uh, before becoming a full-time pastor 20 years ago. Uh, over 10 of those years, I've been a pastor of pastors or a leader of leaders, um, doing area leader and regional leader work. And so I've asked Jesus to, you know, help me deconstruct this false self, and I started to just learn how to be more honest. Now, it it was really about being honest about my limitations and the fact that, you know, I do have fears, and I do have flaws, and I do have failures, and I really do get hurt when someone rejects me, and I am insecure sometimes, and I do try to get love by acting like I don't have limitations, but I do have them, and when, when they're exposed And you find out about them, I'm not relieved that you finally know the truth about me. Uh, Instead, I'm really, really ashamed. I feel a lot of shame. With all of my limits exposed, I'm covered in deep, deep shame. And I'm ashamed of feeling ashamed. (laughs) I'm ashamed of the shame. And so I try to hide it all. And, you know, what God's been showing me is that that created this habitual sin of lying about it all. So, you know, God's just been showing me how hiding my limitations and shame has caused this habitual disobedience where I lie about myself, and that's actually spread into different areas of my life, and it's caused messes to the point that, you know, a year and a half ago, um, you know, I was lying to my husband about our finances, and through my faith walking with Tammy and Judy and my coach, you know, they challenged me to confess that, Um, and drag that into the light. And I went through a process of doing that and healing. And um, I remember the day that, you know, I finally, you know, just started to admit that I had limits and that I had shame and it, it crushed me because, you know, I'm, I want to be this person over here who doesn't have limits. I'm 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 married to her. Like she she's who I've constructed for so many years. And so I was spending time with Jesus and I was having heart-to-heart talks and I was journaling in my spiritual discipline containers as he spoke to me about this. And I was writing down kind of some of the ways that I had hidden my limits. And I wrote down that sometimes, you know, I spin the story or I exaggerate about how you know, well I'm doing when I'm not. Or I say I don't need help when I do. Or, and as I'm writing these things down, the Holy Spirit says, why don't you just write down that you lie? <laughs> and I'm telling you, my hand started shaking as I held my pen. And I tried to write the words that I'm a liar. And I couldn't write the words down. And I, and I said, God... I don't want to be a liar I can't write it down I don't want to be a liar and as clear as I've ever heard God say anything to me before he said this to me in that moment I heard God say this and he said that's because I created you to be a truth bringer I just spit I'm sorry he said, I've created you to be a truth bringer. And when he said the word truth bringer, it was in all capitals and neon. And it was as if he like handed me my identity. It was as if he like branded it like right across my heart. When he said the word truth bringer, I knew it was true. And I knew that oftentimes I have been a truth bringer about healing and God's love and all kinds of things in my life. But that I was compromised in this area, and I had this integrity gap, and that I was not a, being truthful about my limitations, and about my, you know, who my true self was, was, I was hiding, and, um, and so I just kind of, like, sat there in that moment, and something really powerful happened in the spirit realm, and, and I immediately knew this is what I'm for, <laughs> like, this is my walking orders. This is where he wants to take me and that he was on this mission of my life to, to make me be the most authentic, honest, pure truth bringer. And this is, this is what we're doing in my transformation. And that he's going to close like all my integrity gaps and he's going to help me learn to be honest and to be a truth, truthful person about everything in my life, not just parts of it. And the more honest that I am right now, as I'm learning how to do this about my limitations and about my shame, you know what? At times I feel like, well, I suck. You know, I, I really do. Sometimes I just feel empty handed, like I don't have anything to offer. And then it leads me to not feeling valuable, which leads me to not feeling loved. And so, you know, I'm going through the, thank you, sweetheart. You're so compassionate. Good get this on the recording, <laughs> and it, just for the record, I'm blowing my nose, just so you know, when you listen to the recording, what's going on, you'll hear that, and go, what is she doing? Drinking water. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm, I'm, you know, not feeling valuable, feeling full of limitations, which leads me to not feeling love. And then guess who comes? The enemy. He comes knocking, and he gets on it, and he manifests my shame voice. And I hear these really oppressive lies, and he says it over and over and over again to me. And he says things like this. How in the hell Satan cusses at you, actually? I mean... Some of you thought that was just you having cuss words go through your mind. And it's, it, did you know that? Like Satan's the one that's saying vulgar things to you about you. And um, it's probably not you. Uh, he says to me, How in the hell are you going to be able to do what you're called to do with all of these limitations and with this really dark blanket of shame on you? He says, He screams at me, It is impossible. And as part of my healing and just to practice, learning to practice being the truth bringer that God says that he made me to be, I've been practicing just having honest conversations with other people. And and it's simply including them in my healing process and letting them see what God's doing in my life. And after one of those talks with a lay leader in our church, because when people started to ask me, you know, like, if I, how am I, I started to be honest And and say, you know, I I remember there was a a three-week period where I was just starting to be super honest with myself. And it was a terrible, terrible, difficult time because it was hard just to admit it. And so I had a lot of internal angst about it and um, anxiety and uh, a tremendous amount of shame, which I'd never really felt shame before. And so I was drowning in this really dark, oppressive shame at the time. And then uh, some external things happened. My kids got deported from the country and, um, you know, a good friend died. Uh, and, you know, it just like all kind of like this perfect storm happened, external things, internal things. I ended up having like one of the first panic attacks I've ever had in my life just when I got up to preach one time. And uh, so I was going through all of that and she's like, how you doing? <laughs> you know, and I, instead of lying, I actually kind of told her. Uh, and I, you know, tried to be sensitive, and she was in my office, so it was like a short six-minute talk. And after one of those little talks with her, she's a lay leader in our church, she texted me this later that day. She said, Brenda, I've been searching for words of hope and grace to offer you. And I came upon this verse from Psalm 42. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, and he set my feet on a rock, and he gave me a firm place to stand. And she said, "As you have shown us so much grace, we, your friends in church, want to be a part of that firm place that you stand on. We love you and your God-filled heart." And as I, sorry, as I read those words, my heart was so filled with encouragement. And it was as if, you know, this hope and the Holy Spirit fell on me. And even though she was just one voice, it was as if I heard this whole choir of hundreds of people in my church standing up and going, yeah. I mean, it felt like I knew that it was true. It just resonated with me that she represented a lot of my church family and how they felt for me. And so, you know, it Again, just like that experience with that hug with the beautiful California couple <laughs> that I told you about, the Lazats, just like that, it, in that moment, I felt healing come and I felt freedom from the lies that it wasn't okay for me to be messy <laughs> and that it wasn't okay for me to have limitations and that it wasn't, you know, I felt freedom from the lie that it wasn't okay for me to be honest about my limitations, and that I could be honest, and, and my church, my, there, there's mature people that could handle it, <laughs> they could handle it, and they could be Jesus to me, and, and so far, you know, when I'm honest about my limitations and shame, God's people have shown me Jesus, and grace, and compassion, and that helps me create a new vow, <laughs> a positive vow, and my positive vow that I'm learning to live into is that my limitations can be seen, And they can be known, and I'm still valuable. And I can make a mistake and have limits and still be a good leader. And courage is doing it afraid, not waiting till you're not afraid and trying to do it. Because that never happens. More snot. And so I'm just trying to learn how to live into this, this new positive vow. And I feel sometimes like I'm getting my butt kicked by transformation. (laughs) And, you know, but I can get glimpses of this new place that God's taken me. And I'll tell you, the weight that's come off of me from learning how to stop lying, the weight of trying to be my false self and pretend like I don't have limitations is way heavier than you know anything I've experienced that was hard about transformation. And uh, I know that this new place, this di- one day, and I have this written in different places where I sit so I can read it, I pray over it, I spend time with Jesus over it. Um, and this is my positive vow that one day I will enjoy the freedom of being completely honest with myself and with God and with others about my limitations and about my fears, and I will be confidently loved as God's child instead of trying to get love out of my insecurity. And one day, I'm going to learn how to lead out of my most authentic and vulnerable self. And I'm going to acknowledge my limitations with no shame. And that's the beautiful place that God God's taking me. And it's even taken me a long time to actually believe this. Because at first, it was hard to believe. See, the, there's this illusion about the false self. And here's a, a quote from Emotional Healthy Spirituality by Peter Sicar whatever his name is. <laughs> <laughs> the vast majority of us go to our graves without knowing who we are. We unconsciously live someone else's life or at least someone else's expectations for us. This does violence to ourselves and our relationship with God and ultimately to others. So I want to talk for a minute about some of the ways that some of the bad fruit that God has shown me from living in a way that's not authentic, from my false self that I I kind of exposed to you this morning. And so there's a few things that are just, they're like clues that kind of reveal that false self to us. And it does take some courage to be honest enough to face them. and But they're just helpful little, I think of them as a barometer. They're a helpful little barometer that helps us look at a few of, of the things that we can identify. And I've just found them to be helpful. And the first one is, is being defensive. And honestly, I've spent so much of my young life, um, before I was 30, just being a defensive person. Um, and the false self needs to constantly be bolstered up and built up. And it's, and it's not real. So you have to work over time to make it appear as if you're someone you're not. And when people start to poke holes in that, you have to defend it. I talked about that a little bit. So touchiness or being hypersensitive or being easily offended and getting defensive points to our false way of being. Like, the more easily offended you are, it's an indicator that you're really investing in defending your false self. So when people, you know, are poking holes in some of your masks or your public self, you just start to feel fear. And that fear, sometimes you're... you're it's this fear that they're going to find out what's going on behind it in your inner self or in your private self or in your secret self. And so, you know, for instance, some people just, like... They bristle. They get easily offended if they're not taken seriously, and most likely it's because they have the need for other people to see them as pretty important and, you know, serious. And they want they want to be taken seriously, and so when they aren't taken seriously and they don't feel important, they get upset, and so they take themselves too seriously. Maybe being able to, you know, maybe they can't laugh at themselves for 12 minutes in front of everybody um that doesn't make you feel very important but you know it's just sometimes we learn to kind of mask those outward things those outward displays of being defensive we try to cover the defensiveness up uh, and it's all just to try to cover how we really feel inside and the way that we get annoyed or irritated it still points toward the fact that we have this false self And so let me give you an an example from the author of the book, The Gift of Being Yourself, and I'm just going to read a tiny bit here of his story, one paragraph. I have always disliked being called Dave. Sometimes I correct people who do so. More often I simply remind myself how trivial the matter is and I attempt to ignore my irritation. The obvious question, though, is why am I making such a big deal out of one consonant at the end of my name? The answer points back to the core of my false self. David, I confess, seems to fit better with the image of seriousness that I want to project. Dave seems too common and ordinary, perhaps too familiar. And in the puffed-up state of self-importance associated with my false self, I want to be unique, and I want to be important, and I don't want to be content with ordinary, and that's how the false self works. Its touchiness is predictable. Pettiness is one of its most stable characteristics. And that leads us to another clue. That uh, also points out our false self, and so uh, I think if we can be honest enough to see it, uh, the next thing that God has shown me is my pet peeves. Uh, you know what you know what I mean by that right The things that kind of like bother us the most about other people they're the things that sort of like get under our skin and they just they just they really bug us um, it's actually talked about in Matthew 7:3 I think this verse means, um, what I'm talking about here. It's the speck that bothers me in the life of someone else is almost always the log in my own eye. And uh, this, is, this was a hard one. I actually had to spend hours with Jesus on this to see this because I had some pretty righteous pet peeves. And, um, <laughs> and I was defending them. And the Lord, it took hours for me to let the Lord pull back the layers and show me what was really going on. It was very humbling. But our pet peeves reveal our false self. And so let's just think about this and make some applications. Here's some examples. If laziness in others is what really bothers us, then there's probably a pretty good chance that discipline and performance are a core part of our false self. That, you know, we are kind of like embracing that with tenacity. And and if it's playfulness and spontaneity in others that I find the most annoying then probably seriousness, the opposite of that, might be kind of the central part of my false self. And I'm trying to protect that, and I'm working really hard to, like, project it. Or if it's moral, you know, disregard that's particularly irritating to someone, then your false self is probably built around moral self-righteousness. Well, I would never do that, you know? And so when you see other people have a moral failure... You have zero grace for it, and you kind of have a self-righteous attitude. Or if people are having a strong, like, emotional response, and that really bugs me, like, oh, why do they have to be so emotional all the time? I kind of, you know, like, despise that in others. Then there's probably something about, you know, controlling your emotions that's really central to the script of your false self. Does that make sense? So you can kind of, like, it's almost like you have to flip the coin over And see, like, what's on the other side? There's always a correlation of how one reveals the other. And uh, here's a couple of examples of my own pet peeves. And it's really, like I said, um, taking me a long time to admit some of this. But I've just prayed and I've asked God, like, I really need you to reveal these things to me. Because it's all part of him destructing my false self. So one example for me is I have always been really irritated with people who struggle with insecurity. And as I've prayed about this, you know, they're the hardest people for me to be around. And, um, and so I've prayed about it a lot and I've asked God to show me, you know, what's, what's going on. And what God has shown me is that I just take, because my false self was really overconfident because of my overaffirming father's voice, that I take a lot of pride in my own kind of self confidence. And so it was all false. But if you don't have that, I don't have I don't have patience for you, right? And so uh, as I prayed about that, um, I I realized like I kind of wish that you'd believe that I'm completely confident, and you know deep inside my really authentic self. And now I can honestly say that you know it, I do have fear of rejection, and I do have insecurity. And as I'm becoming more and more authentic about some of those things that I've worked so hard to portray are taken away. My authentic self is very aware of my insecurities, uh, way more than I would, would have ever honestly admitted. Another example for me is when people don't allow me to help them through hard times. Um, it always bugged me when people would be like, oh, I just went through the hardest time, but thankfully I got through it, and I'm like, well, pfft now you tell us, like, why didn't you let us pray for you? It was like, you know, and I, I had this sort of like, it was always one of my pet peeves that when people go through re- really hard stuff alone, and then they later admit it, you know, and say, that was really tough. I've kind of preached about how wrong that is, and how, you know, they need to be willing to do community, and let others help them through life. And, you know, I, I mean, this has been something I've even preached, you know, points on. I've been really adamant about it. And so, when I Named it as a pet peeve and asked God to reveal to me what was under it. What He said to me is, you know, it actually highlights my own need to be trusted, and I'm offended that they didn't trust me to talk to me about it, <laughs> and because that would have made me feel valuable and loved. Isn't that broken? You know, it's just like somehow I feel the need to be trusted, to be a confident, and so my strong reaction to that reveals the pretense of my false self. Does that make sense? So it's very helpful to kind of look at pet peeves and um, it reveals something. All right, and then the, the next thing is the pattern of our compulsions. And this is because living out of our false self develops addictions and dependencies in our lives. I'm actually kind of fascinated about this aspect of our false self. It's a really a tragic result of trying to meet our own needs. And uh, if we dared to trust God is good, then we would discover that everything we could ever, you know, most deeply long for is found in God and it's not going to be in, in other things. But when we choose to go to other things separate from God, we become, you know, that, that becomes part of our false self. But there's this hollowness in the false self, to attachments, and so um, all kinds of wrong things, and that usually leads to addiction, and so, um, you know, other people that have excessive attachments and false selves, they that's glaringly apparent to us, and it's really not that easy for us to see that we have some lies of our own, that um, we have some addictions as well because of our false self. Um, 2 Corinthians twelve eight, and this is just that, Familiar verse from Paul. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. And, you know, one person might compulsively uh, pursue success or esteem or being famous, and another person might, you know, spend tons of energy and avoiding pain for you know or emotional distress and there's really nothing wrong with some of the objects and the things whether you know their relationships or uh, substances or shopping or whatever you know there's nothing really wrong with some of the things in and of themselves the problem is that they become compulsions we, they become attachments because we're desperately trying to meet our needs and we've elevated them to this higher value this place in our life and it's disproportionate um, amount of importance that we attach to it. The most basic function of our compulsions is to help us preserve our false self. But maintaining this illusion is the source of really all of our unhappiness. And so, you know, whatever the false self is trying to make other people believe, it, believe about us, um, I find this kind of fascinating. But I would love to believe, and I think I did for a lot of years, that my false self, as I've described her to you, Um, that that's how God is and that that's what God likes. And so I project that on God and I make God kind of in the image of my false self. And we all do that because it gives us permission to kind of stay like that. So if our false self is about like being serious and self-righteous, then we walk around thinking that's how God is. Um, Because You know, that's why I'm putting energy into this, is to please God. And this is what God wants. And so we kind of redefine who God is. Listen to this quote by David Benner from his book, The Gift of Being Yourself. We all tend to fashion a God who fits our false self. If my false self is built on an image of moral rectitude, I will tend to bolster this by casting God in the same light. Or if my investment is in an image of self as whimsical and spontaneous and playful, It's almost inevitable that I develop a picture of God painted with these same colors. Having first created a self in the image of our own making, we then set out to create the sort of God who might in fact create us and approve of how we live out who we are. This is the perversity of the false self. Coming out of hiding is accepting God on God's own terms. Doing so is the only route to truly being our unique self in Christ. And I just want to talk for a second here about courage and the courage that it takes to really get vulnerable and stay vulnerable. Um, When I'm in some of my hardest, hardest places, that depth of that really dark time or grieving or shame, and, you know, when I feel pressure internally or externally, everything feels kind of out of control. It's in those moments that I'm kind of being invited My messy life plus God's invitations to his plans and his purposes to transform me into somebody who looks like Jesus. So there's something about embracing the the mess of it all and and thinking of it a little bit more as an invitation. And I did talk about this with the resistance last night and just how that's a signpost to an invitation um, and so, I have this little visual pathway, and it's, it, 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 it might be easier to see this. My messes drive me to my spiritual workout, which we talked about this morning, which drives me to my spiritual disciplines, which drives me to a safe place to be vulnerable, which drives me to have these heart-to-heart Jesus moments, which drives me to accept God's invitation into his plans and his purposes which drives me to a beautiful new hopeful place of transformation you can kind of see this this pathway and you know that we're really on this is why it's a journey because it doesn't it's not a thing that happens in you know in a moment or in a month and here's a quote from surrender to love by david g benner david benner is one of my favorite authors at the moment. Um, for obvious reasons, but he wrote a, a trilogy, three small paperback books. I think I have them all in the bookstore, um, or you can get them easily, but it's Surrender to Love, The Gift of Being Yourself, and Discerning God's Voice are his, is his trilogy. So this is out of one of his, of the, his books uh, as well, Surrender to Love. Genuine transformation requires vulnerability. It is not the fact of being loved unconditionally that is life-changing. It is the risky experience of allowing myself to be loved unconditionally. And um, so, you know, the thing about vulnerability is it always feels unsafe. (laughs) It always feels really risky. And when I was in the middle of some pretty difficult changes that God was wanting to make in my life, and I was just discovering like how much I was lying and hiding my limitations. I was getting a lot of prayer. I was on my sabbatical, actually, and I spent some time getting prayer for some really good vineyard leaders and sharing my story with them, people who knew me and loved me. And so one day I was in Denver at the Mile High Vineyard. I was staying with um, Jane Daniel Pathak during this time, and I was going to church alone. And I'm getting ready, and I started feeling like this weird kind of, nervousness and this anxiety. And um, I was like, God, what is this? You know, is this my true self? I, you know, what what am I, what's going on right now? And I kind of just felt like I started interacting with him. And I started thinking about all the places that I go around the country um, and, you know, even internationally. And I preach and I walk in and out of churches and I don't feel this weird thing that I'm feeling. And I'm not even here to preach. I'm on sabbatical. I'm going to be a visitor. I'm going to, like, go in the back row and just sit down. And, you know, some people won't even know who I am. And I can just be incognito. And so I was, like, super confused. Like, what are, what's the, all the nerves about? What's this anxiety about? And as I, I kind of wrestled with it, and I, I went to church, and worship started, and I was sitting there in the back row. And then I started kind of getting mad about it. And I, I started to say to God, like, you know what? This true self-stuff really sucks. And I miss her. I miss being overconfident. I've walked in and out of places and felt fine. You know? I feel I feel great when I'm overconfident. I like her. I miss her. This, this true self-authenticity. I have to feel this anxiety and this vulnerability. I don't like this. Who wants to be me now, you know? And, and I just kind of was whining and complaining and worship is going. And, you know, I made a really strong statement about how much I miss being overconfident. And I really don't like this feeling of vulnerability. And God said, yeah, but all of that was a lie. That was your false self. You were hiding behind it. You were pretending a lot. And it's not even true. And so during that conversation, I said, okay. So, okay. Yet one for you. (laughs) And I said, "I, I feel so vulnerable. Like, how can this be the beautiful place that you're taking me? I feel so weak in this moment and so exposed. And I I'm just feel like a baby, like this terrible feeling. And and he said, you know what? I think that you're a hundred times more courageous right now in your vulnerability than you ever, ever were before in your false confidence. What you're doing now is real courage. It's doing it afraid, because courage isn't sitting somewhere until you can bolster up enough confidence to feel 10 feet tall and bulletproof. It, you know, it, here, it's, it's Let's do this together, even if you're afraid, because I'm God and you're not, and I'm going to be beside you, and I am with you. And Brenda, you can trust me, and you are not alone. And I know vulnerability. I know this feeling that you're feeling, and you're not alone, and you can trust me. And I've just experienced so much resistance to this feeling of being vulnerable. And really, I I get a little bit stuck here sometimes over the past year or so. And so when I feel this resistance, I just, I kind of start to pray. And I get prayer over and over. There was a time, you know, coming out of my sabbatical where every time I got prayer, I just kept asking people to pray for me so that I could find the answer to this question, why am i so resistant to being vulnerable <laughs> if this cuz i was convinced this is what god wants he wants me to learn to be exposed and admit my limits and this grand beautiful vulnerability and and if this is my new true self that god's calling me to i don't want to walk around hating it so what is this like resistance about and i was getting prayer one day i was back to work part time we had a woman leaders meeting and then we kind of got in some groups and prayed and Jill Peterson from our staff was praying for me and she had this really this picture and and when she painted this picture in her prayer it was like it, it broke something like the confusion like broke off of me and the picture was this cage and I was inside of the cage and Jesus was outside of the cage with the door open and he said I'm not gonna he had his hand in there And he had his arm on me, and he he said, but I'm not going to, like, pull you out. I'm not going to make you come out. I'm not going to force you to come out. And I know you feel safe in there. That's why you're in the cage. (laughs) But you need to know something, Brenda. It's way safer out here because I'm out here. He said, you know, that vulnerability is because it doesn't feel safe. (laughs) That's all. The resistance is, you would like it to feel safe, and it doesn't feel safe to be vulnerable. And so, you know, I start talking to him about it. I start crying. I have my question answered that I'm resistant to vulnerability because it doesn't feel safe. I feel exposed. And and then he starts to share with me. I say, so... How, how is this going to end up good? Like, you know, like, where's the joy? Where's the freedom? Where's the fun? I don't see it. Um, and he says, the, the joy isn't in being vulnerable. It's found in me. The freedom is in me. The fun is in me. And I'm out here. And you're safer out here because I'm out here. And I'm the one that's going to be with you, or you're not alone. And so, you know, it, it just like, it, it, it healed me. Uh, the resistance just sort of like, it just sort of lifted off of me because I'm like, oh, it's about being safe. And my safety is in my savior. He's the one that's going to make me safe. He's the one. And sometimes I'll tell you, um, <laughs> I have done exactly what God wanted me to do, I was in a room full of leaders, and um, I had, there was, it it was, this was last year, and I was, had some rough things happen in this leadership context, and um, leaders from a lot of different churches were gathered, and, um, and, and I was feeling like, you know, sometimes hurt, and sometimes misunderstood, and we were having a meeting, and, you know, it kind of got to the end, and I kept feeling like I wanted to cry, and then I would push it back down, like, oh, no, you know, I'm not crying in this room of leaders, because that's not what a good leader does, and um, I was, like, really trying to, like, move between my false self and my, and my real self, and I just feel the Lord going, you got to be honest, you got to be honest, you got to be honest, so I'm, like, okay, I have something to say before we go, and, um, and I started being honest, and I started sharing, like, some of my things I was feeling, and, Some of my fears, and we ended up having a really good discussion, and we prayed. And I was like, "Oh, thank God, I did what you want me to do. I obeyed you. I was vulnerable." And for three days, I was so oppressed with so much shame. And I was sitting in church on a Saturday night. I was trying to worship, like, God. I did exactly what you wanted me to do. I was vulnerable. I was honest. I, you know, I was authentic. And I feel like crap. And I'm oppressed. And he goes, this is just shame. This is like a vulnerability hangover because you were so vulnerable. And now the enemy is telling you, don't you regret it? Don't you wish that they didn't see that in your leadership? Don't you wish you hadn't have said that with those leaders? Because they don't, you know, that's kind of weird, isn't it? They might not think you're a good leader. It was all just shame. And so I had been learning what to do with shame and how to drag shame into the light. And, you know, there's three things you have to do to drag shame into the light. And there are three C's. This has revolutionized my life um, with with shame. This isn't in your notes. It's a freebie. (laughs) The three C's are you have to have the courage to call it shame, which it took me a long time. I'm 56, and I just started admitting that I have shame because I just started admitting that I have limitations. You don't have any shame if you don't have any limitations, (laughs) But um, when you're honest about it, you feel the shame. And so you have to have the courage to name it and call it shame. And the second C is you have to go connect with someone and say, I'm in trouble here. I feel shame. And the third thing is receive compassion from that person and from God and have compassion for yourself. And so that night I went and found Casey and I went and found Jill and I told him about what happened three days before in this leadership meeting and how now I was oppressed with shame and how I couldn't even worship and I needed to connect with them and I needed to have the courage to name it and I wanted them to pray for me and as they prayed for me, I felt their compassion and I felt God's compassion and the shame just melted right off of me. It was over. (laughs) You know? And so I do it now all the time, those three Cs, I do them really quickly. Um, You have to, like, call it what it is. Have the courage to connect with other people as quick as you can and then receive the compassion. And shame only works when it's secret. It only works when it's covert and hidden and secret. Shame doesn't work in the light. It doesn't work as soon as you name it and connect with someone and call it what it is. It starts to just already fizzle. And then when you experience their compassion and Jesus' compassion and you have compassion for yourself, Boom shakalaka. It's gone. <laughs> it's really cool. And I'm really excited about how easy this has been to kind of like, it's not that I don't feel it still. Sometimes I do. But when I do, I know what to do. I know where to, I know where to go. And I, I think of it as like dragging it into the light. And then it's over because it can't work when it's not. So it takes courage to Pray this verse, Psalm 139, another familiar verse, 23. Search me, God, know my heart, test me, know my anxious thoughts, and see if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me into the way of everlasting, which is Shalom, Brenda, the way of everlasting.